is Hugh Douglas from 92.90 Game, and you listen to MTMV Sports. Nice days can come with a hidden cost. Seasonal allergies. So the Weather Channel is using IBM Watson to predict local allergy risk up to 15 days out. Get allergy insights with Watson on the Weather Channel app and weather.com. En JCPenney sabemos que nos extrañas y nosotros te extrañamos aún más. ¿Pero qué pasa si te decimos que tenemos una tienda abierta todo el día, todos los días? ¡La tenemos! En jcp.com o en el app de JCPenney. ¿Quieres un traje de baño? ¡Lo tenemos! ¿Algo para estrenar este verano? ¡También! ¿Marcas exclusivas y tus marcas nacionales favoritas? ¡También! Visita nuestra página para los más recientes cupones y aprovecha envío estándar gratis en compras de 49 dólares o más. JCPenney. Apliquen exclusiones. Detalles en la tienda o jcp.com. Hello, everybody. I'm Ed Robinson, and welcome to another exciting edition of The Robinson Show. On the program, I have track and field coach and multimedia journalist Wendy Ann Clark. She has reported for outlets such as the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Athletics Ontario, Tennis Canada, the Toronto Observer, and also Yahoo Sports Canada. She has a YouTube channel called Color Commentary, which is dedicated to athletes and highlighting their fight for social justice and change. She's coming up after the break. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Robinson Show. People who are sick should stay home. You don't go to an emergency room. You don't go to a clinic. You get on the phone and you ask for advice and instructions from your physician. Then you use those instructions to determine what you're going to do. But the first reflex should not be, I feel sick, I'm going to go to an emergency room. I feel sick, I'm going to just go to a doctor's office. We need to physically separate. Ultimately, You may need, obviously, to see a physician or to go to a hospital. The first reflex should be to make a call to your physician. Wash your hands with soap and water before you eat, after using the toilet, after touching anything many other people touch, like a seat on a public bus. Scrub thoroughly for 20 seconds. If you cannot wash your hands, use a hand sanitizer. Taking these steps can prevent not only coronavirus, but also colds and flu and other viruses. For more information, visit the World Health Organization's website, www.who.int, or the Centers for Disease Control's website, www.cdc.gov. Feeding San Diego is working diligently to respond to the rapidly increasing need for food during the COVID-19 pandemic. Widespread school and business closures, wage loss, and limited access to food are impacting countless people throughout the community. Feeding San Diego has launched drive-through emergency food distributions across San Diego County to help meet the need. This is a community that looks after each other even while we distance ourselves in the name of health and safety. Visit feedingsandiego.org coronavirus to make a gift to the COVID-19 response fund. The virus that causes coronavirus disease is spreading in some of our communities. This disease, also known as COVID-19, is thought to spread mainly from person to person 
through respiratory droplets produced when an infected person coughs or sneezes. These droplets can spread to the mouth, nose, or hands of people who are nearby or possibly be inhaled into the lungs. Take steps to lower your risk of getting sick. Here are some things you should do. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. You can also use hand sanitizer that contains at least 60% alcohol. Take extra measures to put distance between yourself and others. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Stay home if you're sick, except to get medical care. If you have severe symptoms, please call 911. Cover coughs and sneezes with a tissue or the inside of your elbow. Only wear a face mask if you're sick and around other people, or if you need to take care of someone who is sick. Clean and disinfect frequently touched surfaces. Older adults and people who have severe chronic medical conditions, like heart or lung disease or diabetes, are at higher risk for more serious illness from COVID-19. This group should consult with their healthcare provider about additional steps to stay protected. For more information on COVID-19, please visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Let's work together to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. This is what high blood pressure looks like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. I can't button up a shirt. I can't run. I've had to learn to swallow again. That's the only more minutes that I have. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. Had I done this, had I done that, hell, I messed up. Get back on your plan or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhpp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. It is Tom. There's no question the ESPN and Netflix documentary Last Dance has given sports enthusiasts like myself life during this time where sports have been on hiatus. People who were fans back in the 90s get to relive the glory days of the Jordan era, and those who may be younger and perhaps only know Jordan as a symbol on their shoes have gotten to experience what all the fuss has been about. Hopefully this documentary puts to rest any lingering question as to who is the greatest player of all time. All right, everybody, welcome back to the program. And that voice that you hear is our guest on the program. We want to welcome to the Robinson Show a young, a young lady who's a, not only a track and field coach, but also is a multimedia journalist. And that show that you hear, that's from her YouTube channel, from a program that she has called Color Commentary, which is dedicated to, to athletes and highlighting their fight for social justice and change. We want to welcome to the program Wendy Ann Clark. Hello, Wendy Ann. How's everything? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? 
I'm doing well. Thank you once again for taking your time out of your busy schedule to be on the program. So let's get right yeah, to it. Uh, before we begin with, uh, again, thank you. And um, before we talk about what's currently going on and get for dig, dig deep into uh, what's going on, uh, your upbringing, you grew up in Canada, particularly you grew up mm-hmm. in the Toronto area. Just give our audience just a little bit about your upbringing and how it make, made you into uh, the, the person that you are today. Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Toronto. Um, anybody who's been to Toronto knows that Toronto is a city, uh, actually Canada is a country of immigrants, and Toronto is probably one of the most diverse cities in the world. Um, and so my parents are from Jamaica, and so they immigrated to Jamaica, uh, to Canada. Um, and um, yeah, so I was born and raised in a, in a very Caribbean-Canadian household and, um, you know, always did well in school and uh, developed a, a passion for track and field at a very young age. And so um, I was always the girl running. That's why my, my Instagram handle is Wendy Ann Runs because it's just such a big part of my life. And uh, towards the end of high school, I started to take uh, track and field a little bit more seriously um, as I had some, some opportunities to go to the States. I was being looked at by some recruiters and that sort of thing, and I, I wasn't in a track club or anything like that. And so um, I decided that, you know, this is something that I really want to focus on. Um, and so um, I ended, long story short, I ended up uh, staying in Canada. I attended York University where I studied psychology and competed on the track and field team. I, um, this is an American program. Ed, is this an American program? Yes. Uh, yes, okay. So um, in Canada, uh, the audience might not know, but uh, we have the CIS, which is similar to the NCAA system. And so in the CIS, uh, I did, had a very, very respectable career, and um, I also um, I, I won a CIS medal and, and that sort of thing. So it was, it was great. And when I was making the transition um, towards the end of my um, academic uh, career, I developed an injury. So I, I had an overuse injury. I, I'd uh, torn a tendon in my ankle, which was absolutely devastating. I wasn't able to finish my last year. And that uh, process set me on uh, a, a quite a years-long journey um, in, that ultimately led me into to sports journalism. So um, in 2015, uh, when Toronto was preparing for the Pan Am Games, I um, was recruited uh, by someone in track and field to be a spotter working for the host broadcaster, which is CBC. Uh, that would be the equivalent to, let's say, NBC in the United States. And um, that opened up my eyes to, to sport in just a different way. Um, it was, for me, the culmination of so many things that I had a passion for, track and field. I was also somebody who was doing a lot of acting, a lot of um, stage managing, that sort of thing. So it was the production of sport as well. And it was also storytelling, which is something that I was uh, very, very passionate about as well. So I got really excited. and I thought, wow, I found my, my thing. I found my groove finally. And so um, just talking to the and I also noticed, I should mention that I was the only black person on in the team of a team of about 60, 70 people. And um, uh, so I talked to people and they were very encouraging. So I decided that this is a path that I was going to go down. So I enrolled in journalism school uh, immediately after. So within within uh, days of, of finishing those um, uh, the Pan Am Games. And I attended uh, Centennial College, where which is a sports journalism program. 
that's uh, excellent program. And that is really uh, what led me into the industry. So um, in 2016, I uh, had the opportunity to um, work as part of the production team in Toronto covering uh, the, the Rio Olympics. And then following the Rio Olympics, of course, we have the, the Paralympics that uh, occur sort of alongside the Olympics, <clears throat> so immediately afterwards. Um, and I uh, had the opportunity to travel to Rio and cover uh, the Paralympics from there, which was an incredible experience, especially having that happen so early in, in my career. So it was a part of a joint program between the uh, Canadian Paralympic Committee and um, CBC Sports. Um, and so writing and just having an opportunity to, to share the stories that I was seeing. And in the sport that I love, so I was covering track and field. So it was, it was, it was just uh, an incredible experience for me. And then after that, I, you know, I've, since then I've been able to um, – cover um, the Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018 um, from as part of the team working in Toronto as a, um, a producer and writer. Um, I have also worked with a number of um, governing bodies, including the um, um, IAAF, which is now World Athletics, uh, covering the World Championships uh, last summer. I worked with Tennis Canada, um, covering Rogers Cup, which is the Canadian Open here. Um, I've also worked with the Indigenous Sport and Wellness Council of Ontario. Um, so lots of different uh, outlets. And um, going into the coronavirus um, situation, I, uh, I was working with uh, World Masters. Uh, so uh, Toronto was uh, getting ready to host the World Masters Championship, which would have been happening like around uh, July, August of this year. And so I was part of the, the media team there. And um, of course, when the coronavirus hit, uh, we had to cancel. And so it's uh, kind of left um, us all in a place of uh, just sort of, you know, people have been pouring their time into this, 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 this um, event and it's not going to happen. So um, uh, since then, uh, you know, this time, in, uh, you know, with the coronavirus, it's been a real soul searching and, and reset time. And so I, I was recently hired with a, uh, a local newspaper. So I, I'm working full time with them, which has been great. And I, I'm doing sports stories and other stories as well. So um, yeah, that's sort of my, my journey from, you know, childhood to, to now. Wow, that's awesome. And you've done a, a lot of great things so far, and you're mm -hmm. continuing to do big things. We're going to touch on coronavirus and all of that stuff in just a moment. I want to get back to your upbringing, specifically Toronto. As you, we know, Toronto is one of the uh, the great cities in all of the world. It's, it's known for its diversity, and as you mentioned, it's a city of immigrants. I want to know, you, you growing up in Toronto, was track and field big in Toronto or was it or we know that can not just Toronto but we know that Canada is known as being a, traditionally a hockey town and as of recent with the mm -hmm. resurgence of the Toronto Raptors but when you coming up was track and field big in Toronto? It's hmm, a good question. So track and field has um, an incredible legacy, uh, particularly that came up in the 80s with the Ben Johnson era. Uh, I don't know um, if you're familiar with Ben Johnson, but he um, was a legend, or still is a legend, that he he won the hundred meter the okay okay the 1988 mm -hmm. Olympics in in Seoul, and so um, yeah. that was a huge deal. And then um, of course um, we know what happened after that, and there's a wonderful documentary called. Uh, 
979, I believe it's called, um, that, that, that goes into that in detail and does an excellent job that I highly recommend. I believe it's an ESPN 30 for 30 doc. But um, so, uh, uh, and then we have, of course, in 1996 with Donovan Bailey and um, uh, the Canadian team winning the four by um, 100 meters. So there is a legacy of track and field um, in, in Toronto. It's not um, the same as, say, in Europe, you know, where they, um, uh, the, the society and the culture really supports and, you know, uh, the European circuit, you'll have stands will be packed with fans and that sort of thing. In Toronto, it's, um, you'll see more family and uh, family members of, of athletes in the stands and that sort of thing. So it doesn't uh, necessarily have the bank uh, that, uh, and the cultural currency in the same way that it has in Europe. But um, um, track and field is a, is a sport that, that uh, arises to the top every four years, right, during the Olympic Games. So it's, it's very popular in Toronto. Yes, it is quite popular, but it's, it's really um, every four years that the, that this, that the city um, really pays attention and you know, pays attention to our athletes. You know, we, of course, we have Audrey Grass now and Aaron Brown and so many others. Um, so, so, yeah, so it's a yes and no. Of course, uh, hockey is, is the, the big sport in Canada and now uh, basketball in a lot of ways it, it can be argued that um, uh, Toronto is is more of a basketball city now than it even is a hockey city um, although the landscape of Canada as a nation is still very much hockey dominant okay well let's stay with track and field for a moment you mentioned that it's mm-hmm. it, it's big but it's not big and again it's it's more of like a a family thing because you mentioned about uh, family members and friends being supportive was it a bit was it big was it a a, a recruiting uh hotbed in track and field in toronto d- during your time running or as it is now or is it still pretty uh stable yeah so um the thing is uh for a long time to if you were very serious about track and field, um, and even now it's still the same in a lot of ways, um, you felt like you had to go to the States. And so uh, recruiters are, are very aware of the, the Toronto um, uh, landscape, and so they come here and they, and they, they, they definitely um, work with athletes, and the, even the, the club that I work uh, with, uh, Flying Angels Track Club, you know, there's relationships with different schools and that sort of thing. So, so people are, uh, recruiters of schools are very, very aware of, of Toronto. Um, what's happened, what's interesting in, in more recent years, is the infrastructure in, in Canada has changed so that um, athletes have more of an opportunity to stay here and still feel supported. So athletes go really because of financial reasons, you know, they've invested, you know, how many years, 10 years usually by that time um, of their life in this sport. And um, they, the objective is to, to get their school paid for, you know, and um, there was, there was really no opportunity for that. Even when I, I stayed here, but even um, when I was in school, it wasn't until my last two years of school that I was able to get any kind of um, bursary or, 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 or any of my tuition covered. And even then, it was about 80% of my tuition, and uh, it, I still had to eat, I still had to live, you know, so it wasn't like I was, I, I still had to work part-time and that sort of thing. So um, um, uh, athletes now, the top athletes that qualify for karting um, definitely have uh, the opportunity to stay. And so we see that with, you know, athletes like Mika Bingham and, and others that have been able to um, have really, you know, thrive and grow and develop. One of the things that happens when athletes, track and field athletes go to the States 
is that when they're in Toronto, you, you know, you're, you're a 100-meter sprinter, you're 18 years old, and you run, let's say, 10-4, uh, you're a superstar here. You're getting rid up in the paper. You're in the, in the Toronto Star. You're, you know, athlete of the week in, in, in different, different local newspapers. But then you go down south and, um, you know, you're, you're, one of, you're one of, you know, 100, 200 guys that are running 10-2, 10-3, or 10-4, you know, and, and it's uh, that are your age. And so it, it can be really um, psychologically uh, difficult for athletes because of the population in Canada is so much smaller in, in, um, in Canada so as compared to the United States. So they're not used to having all of the competition. And sometimes that, that the shock of, of just being one another athlete running 10-2 or 10-3 um, can be so difficult for that athlete to overcome that they lose interest in the sport and we lose them to, you know, they, they, they graduate school and, you know, they go on and, and, and we don't see them again. And it's happened with so many athletes over the years. So um, developing a system to keep athletes in, in, in Canada, in the same way, you know, Jamaicans have, you know, developed a system that they athletes in Jamaica and they're able to train in Jamaica and that sort of thing. This doesn't negate the fact that, you know, many athletes still are going to the States and all of that, which is fine. But um, keeping them from being burnt out, from being psychologically, um, you know, impacted and all of that is, has been key to the development of the program. And, um, you know, we've had a kind of a rocky few years, um, but, um We've, we've seen um, the greatest resurgence in, in Canadian track and field and the success of our athletes on a global scale um, just in the past, uh, you know, a uh, few years. And a, a lot of that has to do with those changes that have been made in the system that are keeping uh, more athletes in Canada. All right, rightfully so. And let's stay in Canada for a moment. Now, I'm looking at some of your educational background. You earned a, you correct me if I'm wrong, you earned a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from York University, and York is one of the top schools, not just in Toronto, but in Canada as well. And as you mentioned earlier, you were on the track team at York. Now, what, what, at the, what events did you uh, specialize in during your time at York? Uh, yeah, so um, Canadian track and field is uh, quite different from um, um, American track and field in that we don't have an outdoor season. So okay. we're uh, a winter nation, and so the, the school year goes until at the end of March. I think you have a few exams, maybe early April, and then you're done for the year. So the weather hasn't even gotten you know, truly warm yet before our school year is over. So, um, uh, so uh, the, the peak at times of our season is, is like late February into March. So um, we use an indoor track, and the indoor track is 200 meters. And so our events range from 60 meters. So we have the 60 meter, the 300 meter, the 600 meter, um, 1,000, and we go up to like the longer distances. And then we have a 4 by 2 relay and a 4 by 400 meter relay. So um, I had a quite a, a long range. My, my true uh, distance would be like the 400 meter um, outdoor, but uh, for university track, um, that would be the 300. So the 400 meter runners would be running the 300, uh, which is kind of run like a long, a long 200. Um, and then um, the 800 meter runners would kind of run the 600 or, you know what I mean? So, so a 400 meter runner would run 300 and 600. So that's what I I, I competed in, but mostly 300. Um, but because of my range, um, I was used in events ranging from 60 meters to um, 800. 
Okay, so you did. You definitely did a wide range of events at your time at York mm-hmm. University, but you mentioned you really did. You specialized. Your your main event was the three hundred meters. So uh, you get yeah. you did big things that um at York. Earning the most important thing was earning your college education there. And again, you you mentioned exactly. about that uh, gruesome that gruesome injury that you had, but never let never mm-hmm. nevertheless it you turned that negative into a positive, and you segued mm-hmm. into uh, a journalism career, which I want to talk about. You've done some things. Before because you mentioned about your full-time job. We're going to get into that in a little bit, but you did mm-hmm. some uh, freelance writing for outlets such as uh, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, also Athletics Ontario, Tennis Canada, Toronto Observer, and uh, Yahoo Sports Canada. Now, we know that the CBC, I mean, I'm American, but I've been following up on some of the wor- the outlets, um, not just in other parts of North America, but around the world. Now, see, the CBC is kind of like the big network, one of the big networks in Canada. How did you mm-hmm. uh, begin your association with the CBC? Mm-hmm. So I actually, I wasn't freelance there. I, I was a staff. Um, so I, uh, that's where I did my internship originally um, uh, when I uh, was in school. Uh, so in 2016, when I did journalism school, um, that's where I, I chose to do my internship. However, um, I was hired there. Uh, before I even started my internship, uh, that was during the 2016 Olympics. They hire a lot of students to help with um, some of the production aspects. So that was my first introduction to um, the the newsroom and the office space at, at, at CBC. And so uh, that was, of course, exciting to grow up. It's, uh, like I said, CBC is kind of like NBC or the BBC um, would be the equivalent um, overseas. Um, so it was it was very um exciting for me and I, I had a, such a, a great experience and of course my knowledge most of the people that work in aren't, aren't necessarily athletes and so I, I came with um, a lot of knowledge uh, particularly of track and field and um, I've also uh, I haven't been, but I do, I, I've boxed a little bit as well so um, it was it was it was great so like you know on a on a regular uh, during a regular Olympics I'd be home watching the Olympics you know all day and PVRing events and that sort of thing. So being able to get paid to do that uh, was like a dream come true. Um, and so it was a lot of fun. And then um, from there, as I mentioned, I, 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 I traveled to Rio and um, I was uh, brought on as a part of a team of five that was working with, directly with the Canadian Paralympic Committee in partnership with CBC Sports. And so, um, as you may be aware, um, the Paralympic uh, movement has uh, continued to grow uh, since it, it began um, many years ago. And um, it's, it's, uh, it still doesn't get as much coverage as um, the Olympic Games. So, for me, it was just an exciting opportunity to bring, to shed light on these incredible athletes. Um, that uh, are working and, and putting in um, all the hours and all the training and the blood, sweat, and tears and are, are doing and performing so well. And so I, um, I was working with um, CBC and, and writing some really, really cool stories. Uh, one of the highlights of that experience for me in terms of the stories that I was writing for CBC was um, something actually very interesting happened. In the 1500 meter, um, it's a very strategic race, and um, the, the athletes, uh, went out and ran the race extremely slow. So the pace of the 1500 meter, which is normally almost a sprint at the highest level, was extremely um, um, pedestrian compared to uh, a regular 1500 meter at that level. And so the qualifying, the, sorry, the final time uh, of the race 
and this is in the Olympic final, was slower than one of the visually um, impaired races in, um, sorry, the, 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 the time in the 1500 uh, at the, uh, the visually impaired 1500 at the Paralympics was faster than the Olympic 1500 time. And so that was, you know, huge news across the world. And people were reporting that that was this huge breakthrough in Paralympic sport. And so <clears throat> for the athletes, though, it was incredibly insulting that that was being said. So they were like, this is not, this is not this huge breakthrough in, in, in Paralympic sport. Like the, the reason why the, the Olympic race was slower is because they were strategic, but those athletes are able to run much faster. So um, I think that sometimes with these movements, people um, think that they're helping athletes and helping the movement by saying that this is a breakthrough when it's not a breakthrough. And so the athletes were quite upset. They said, you know what, you're not, you're not telling our stories in the way that they need to be told. We have athletes that are visually impaired, that have disabilities, that are doing incredible things in their own right. There's no need to compare them to, you know, the, the, what we know as the regular Olympics. And so um, I had the opportunity to talk to some of the athletes, the Canadian athletes, and tell that story and sort of quell the, the talk about this, this, this ridiculous breakthrough in sport. And so as a young <clears throat> you know, journalist that was, you know, my first gig over um, at, uh, in South America at, at a big, cha- uh, big games, like the Paralympic Games, being able to tell a story like that, that kind of quelled all of this, this media attention that this race was get- getting was really, really a big moment for me. So that was uh, part of my, my, my introduction to the sport. And so after that, I, I was hired with CBC as they were preparing to go into um, uh, Pyeongchang. And so I just began working with the team. I was doing uh, social stuff and I was uh, writing as well. So um, that, that began sort of my relationship with them. Wow, that's uh, definitely a, a lot that you've gone through, especially in the early stages of your career. I want to stay with uh, – yeah. Covering the Paralympics and covering Rio de Janeiro, we know Rio is is a dynamic city. It's it's a fantastic city. It's colorful and it's dynamic, and the people are outstanding. When you went there before you you got your assignment to cover the Paralympics for the CBC, did you have an opportunity? Did you and your staff members have an opportunity to go see the city and visit the city before you guys got into the business of it and covering the Paralympics? Yeah, we did. Um, so not a lot of time. Um, so uh, I would say, I'm trying to remember, but I think it was about four, the first four days that we were there, we kind of had the opportunity to go see some of the sites. So of course, we saw, you know, the Christ the Redeemer um, statue. Um, and uh, we went to Sugarloaf Mountain and, and that sort of thing. And I, I, we, I remember we went to, when we were on our way to the Canadian consulate, uh, we were, you know, passing by the beach in Rio. And so we were able to get off the, our, our bus or whatever was transporting us and, and put our feet in the sand <laughs> as we're all in these collared shirts and long slacks just to see the Canadian consulate and, and kind of get back on the bus. So um, we did have a little bit of opportunity to go see some things, but I mean, with the, 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 breadth of experiences that Rio has to offer. I definitely didn't didn't get to see much and much and once the the, the game started, um 
literally I could have been anywhere in the world because I saw so little of, of the actual city. It was really just the indoor of the stadium at that point. And, um, uh, but for me, um, what became a, a really special time was my, my, um, my drive-in on the bus to the stadium every morning. So I was usually by myself. And um, I would just uh, have this opportunity to, before I got into the stadium where I couldn't see, you know, the, the air or the, 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 the landscape in Rio, I would just, you know, stare out the window and just look at the mountains and look at the people and look at the, you know, um, the, the, the communities and, and all of that and, and just look at the flavelas and, you know, it was my time where I was able to recharge and, and, and take in the experience and, you know, talk to God about the day and all of that kind of stuff. So it was, um, it was, it was, it was really a beautiful time. I, I felt like I, um, I didn't get to see a lot of Rio, but a piece of Rio definitely came back home to Toronto with me, um, just because I had those, those wonderful um, experiences yeah, in the, four, the first four days, but also that, that quiet time that I had on the bus coming in every morning. That's awesome to hear. Now, let's stay with Rio again for a moment. We're, we're in the midst of a pandemic, which we'll get deep deep into in just a moment. But Rio, during that time that you were there to cover the Paralympics, Rio was having another pandemic of its own, and that was the Zika virus. During, yes. with, with the CBC, with the CBC um, were, did you guys have any – how did you guys prepare for the Zika virus pandemic? Were you given any type of information from the from the uh, company or from someone at the Olympic Village, just kind of giving you guys an insight on how to prepare for uh, the Zika, Zika virus. What was the preparation like for that? Mm-hmm. So it seems like with every Olympics, there's some sort of, you know, anxiety about a virus or some sort of environmental issue that um, threatens to, to, you know, stop the game. Actually, this, this coronavirus coming up is like the first time where whatever the threat was actually prevented the games from happening this year. But as you said, we will get into that later. But um, it was it was it was very interesting for for um, us, the team of five that I was a part of, because we were connected to three institutions. So we were connected to our school, which was Centennial College. We were also connected to the Canadian Paralympic Committee, and we were also connected to um, CDC. So um, CBC was, we were more just uh, sending stories to them. So they weren't the ones that were sort of taking care of us and, and, and making, ensuring our safety. Um, but uh, once the, I don't remember the Zika virus being a huge issue. Um, I know that we had, uh, you know, it, it was transferred by mosquitoes, right? So it was, we had lots of insect repellent and, and that sort of thing. And, um, one of the things that we signed was that, or we had to make sure that we weren't planning to, as a woman, you weren't planning to have a child within two years of the, of the, the, the games. So, I mean, um, I was the only woman on my team, but, you know, I, I, you know, I felt very confident in the clear with no, uh, you know, prospects for a husband on, you know, on the visible horizon. So um, I was, I was, I was, I was okay. You know, um, even I don't remember getting any mosquito bites or even being afraid of it. So I think more of the anxiety happened as is often the case uh, before when you're going in. But once you get there and you see that, you know, life is going on and people are there and you've got two people working and, and, and people are well, then it wasn't that much of a concern. And I think part of that was just because the, the Zika virus was really impacting uh, pregnant women, women that were having children. So if that wasn't something that was an, an issue or a, a concern, then 
um, at least for a couple of years, um, you you were you you felt like you were okay. All right, and definitely you guys were okay because you're able to uh, do your job and do it very well in covering the Paralympics. And let's all talk about another Olympic Games that you did. And uh, you mentioned Pyong, Pyeongchang, which is in North Korea. Mm. What was what, – I mean, I'm sorry, in uh, South Korea. What was that experience like? So it was good. So I covered um, those games from Toronto, so as part of the Toronto team. So how, how – um, the Olympics work is that um, you have a team that uh, stays in uh, the city. So like even for NBC sports or whatever, they would have a team that's in wherever NBC sports headquarters is and they would have a team that goes down. So I was part of the team that was in Toronto and it was a great experience because um, I worked for CBC before um, and, you know, did writing for them and, and did the parallel as I mentioned, but this was my first time like in the newsroom um, as a part of this team uh, covering, um, doing live coverage of um, of the game of the yeah the games. So it was it was really exciting. It was really the energy in the CBC building um, is uh, is really nice when you're um, uh, covering an Olympics. You know, um, there's so many people in the building. It becomes more diverse. Um, and uh, you meet a lot of new people and that sort of thing. During you know the regular um, times outside of the Olympics, it's a little bit different there. But during the Olympics, it's absolutely um, it's 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 quite fun, and and the energy is just electric because things are happening live. Um, and also, uh, what I loved is that I was able to write some pieces um, for uh, the the games that were happening. So it was it was it was fun because the. Um, when I covered Rio, uh, I wasn't writing. I was part of a production team uh, working on um, uh, clipping videos and that sort of thing. So um, being part of the actual the news team was was just wonderful. And I was also doing social stuff and that sort of thing. So uh, with everything um, being so high profile and um, to the minute, to the second, what you put out, um, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the Canada are 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 taking in your content. It was it was just um, a, a wonderful experience for me. Intense and um, grueling, of course, because you don't have any days off uh, throughout. I think the 21 days of the Olympics, but um, it was it was an absolutely um, tremendous experience. Great to hear, and uh, definitely so far in the early stages of your career, you had the opportunity to work not just uh, one Olympic Games, but two Olympic Games, so that's definitely a chronic achievement that you've done in your career thus far. And um, speaking of uh, something that's kind of uh, been not, I would say something that's definitely got not just our attentions in North America, but all around the world, and that is the coronavirus. And um, you mentioned about the coronavirus that you've currently been working for a news uh, full-time for a newspaper and coronavirus, but definitely it's put a hold to a lot of different things, not just the economy and sports, but just everyday life in general. What have you done aside from work to handle currently what's going on right now with this pandemic? Mm-hmm. So um, for me, um, I mean, it the coronavirus is, obviously incredibly tragic and um it's made uh the lives of so many people just so difficult just financially and also so many people are just grieving the loss of their loved ones and not being able to to see family members um you know people in nursing homes i don't think until very very recently 
um, that they lifted the restrictions on people being able to visit um, nursing homes. So it, it's been very, very difficult for a lot of people, especially those who, who lost people and weren't even able to have a proper funeral and stuff. But um, for me personally, um, I've been really, really blessed, you know, by, by God's grace. Um, uh, we, I haven't had any, you know, major financial issues or, or I, you know, and I've, for the first couple months, um, I was able to just kind of take the time and just have a reset, you know, have a, a, a very human reset. And um, I'm spending a lot of time with my family. I'm actually quarantined with my mom and my brother. And uh, my nephews are here now as well. Um, and, um, yeah, like, you, you, you just really learn um, who, what's important, you know. And um, I haven't been able to coach either or, um, our team um, actually gets back up and running in the next week or so. So it's, it's just, it's really been, it was really just a standstill for a while. And it gave me an opportunity to just sort of look inside myself and uh, as a journalist and, and say, you know, what's really, really important to me, you know? Um, and, and so two things happened for me. One, I discovered that, you know what? I used to call myself a, a sports journalist specifically. And I realized, you know what? I'm a journalist, you know what I mean? Like, uh, we're all just journalists. There's no such thing as a sports journalist, you know? Um, exactly, there's a journalist exactly. that focuses on sports. Yeah, but but we're not sports journalists. And so seeing so many of, uh, uh, you know, colleagues that I know in, in sports journalism, and they're all, you know, writing, you know, stories about, like, regular news stories um, right now, in addition to sports stories, uh, it really opened my eyes and opened my perspective in terms of who I am as a journalist. So um, the outlet that I, I, I write for, I get to do a lot of sports stories, but I'm, I'm doing, you know, a lot of um, – uh, you know, other news stories as well, um, probably even more so than, than sports stories, which is absolutely fine. You know, it's great. And then um, the other thing I learned was that um, it, it, it just gave me an opportunity. It, 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 it solidified for me what my voice is in this sport and what I desire to um, um, convey, particularly in the Canadian landscape, so or the North American landscape, I should say. So um, I've had time to focus more on a YouTube channel that I started, like as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, called Color Commentary. So um, Color Commentary, um, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead in your in your notes there. Oh, no, go ahead. Of, go ahead. Like, Take time. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, yeah. So um, Color Commentary um, for me just sort of came about as. Uh, you know, I, every newsroom that I've been in so far, Ed, I've been the only black person. And beyond just the, 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 the appalling optics of that in, in, you know, the most diverse and multicultural city in the world, um, it also isn't just about me having uh, darker skin. It has to do with my diversity of perspective. You know, um, most of the people that I've worked with have been white and they've been male and, you know, they grew up playing hockey and that sort of thing, which is great and fine and, and definitely has a significant place in um, the, the Canadian sports landscape, but it's not everything, you know? And um, I felt very much like, um, and I learned very quickly that uh, the infrastructure of Canadian media wasn't designed of uh, black women in mind, <laughs> you know, truly diverse black women. And I say truly diverse because 
not everybody who looks like me um, grew up the way that I did or has the perspective that I have. And sometimes when we see a diverse person in certain spaces, we think, oh, that person is, you know, uh, black in the same way that I am, you know, but then you, you know, you, you realize sometimes very quickly that they've been accepted into those spaces because they, they think and, and act and behave like the people that are already there. So you're not getting a, a truly diverse voice, if that makes sense. So um, I, I, I recognize that. Um, and I was definitely drawn a lot to uh, racial issues, social justice issues, and just this resurgence of um, activism that we've seen uh, in, in more recent years, um, especially when you contrast it to the generation of athletes that, that uh, arose right after, the, um, uh, right after the civil rights movement that were very, very quiet on social justice issues. And so people like um, Colin Kaepernick, LeBron, et cetera, have, have um, completely shifted the paradigm. So um, I felt like it was very confusing for people what was going on. Uh, people didn't understand why he was kneeling and all this sort of, um, and why, you know, people were being so outspoken all of a sudden. And I felt like um, sport has been such an important part of my life and it's helped to, I, I love the way it brings everybody together. If you looked at the, when the Raptors won the championship, like it was, it was the, a reflection of Canada uh, when we had that parade, you saw people of every color, every hue, all together in celebration of this moment. And so this power that sport has to bring people together, I thought, if I use sport, which I love, to tell these stories, um, it, it would bring more understanding. So that was really um, my, uh, my motivation, and it was also just um, an opportunity for me to have an outlet to just tell my stories, tell the stories that I want to tell, just because I want to tell it. And I don't have to ask anybody and try to convince anybody or, or, or make anybody, you know, legitimize my idea or tweak it or say, you know what, you know, maybe you should do this or can you, you know, make it more like water it down in some way to make it more palpable to whatever audience they, they feel. I just wanted, I desperately needed an outlet to be able to just be free to tell whatever story I wanted to tell, whether it's crazy or ridiculous, whether it gets one view or 500 views, it didn't matter for me. And so um, it was it was something that was necessary. And so during this time, I've been able to uh, spend more time um, focusing on that and, and building that and, and just developing my voice as a journalist, you know, um, going into the development of color commentary. I can't say that I was like, this is what I obviously I wanted to do well and 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 um, excel. Uh, but for me, primarily, it was about it's been about developing my voice and gaining confidence in my, my voice as a journalist. And also, um, it, it's, it's, it can be very, uh, the racial landscape in Canada can be very different from the United States. So we have racism, and uh, racism is obviously a, a very uh, a important thing, but it's not talked about in the way that it is in the States often, um, which is why this past two, three weeks has been, have been so interesting, you know. Um, and uh, so sometimes uh, when you're pitching racial issues, particularly when you're pitching it to your, your white editors, like they just don't get it. You know, they just don't see it. They don't understand it. And they're afraid to, to, to say yes to your, your stories, to your ideas and that sort of thing. So, um, and, I, I, and I don't mean this about any particular outlet, but like lots of um, places that I've worked with. So there's a lot of concern and anxiety, particularly because of the audience and the audience response to the pieces. Like they get very um, 
up in arms about when, when, when race is, is made salient in a story and you see in the comments, like, why are we talking about race? And da, 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 you know, so it's, it's very, um, uh, a real thing. So um, ha- being able to tell those stories and talk about race as much as I want or not talk about race as much as I want was, was very important to me. So that was the motivation behind it. And, and that's something that has really helped me um, throughout this, um, this, this quarantine. And so just being able to, to give myself and, and devote myself more fully to that and, and develop it into, um, you know, whatever it will end up becoming. Rightfully so. You know, you made you mentioned uh, some very valid points to this, but one point that uh, that really stood out was is just um, not just be, it. It was the transition of really becoming from a sports journalist to just being a journalist. A lot of times, we have a tendency, including myself, we sometimes have a tendency to really box ourselves in into just one area. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm a sports journalist, and mm-hmm. this is what it is, and you know, there's no turning back. But with the coronavirus, it changed everything. Not just with myself mm-hmm. being in the States, but in Canada and, and around the world, it really made mm-hmm. us not, it made us, it, it changed our our way of, of looking at things. Just, we kind of looked at mm-hmm. things, as you mentioned, from a singular perspective. And now we're looking at things from just a broader perspective. You know, we're, we're not just sports journalists, we're, we're journalists. And we are still yeah. covering sports, but we always see things as like sports and politics, even though we try to separate it. It always yeah. brings us together. It, it always finds its way back and together. As we talked about mm-hmm. with the Olympics, with the Zika virus and the coronavirus, it just it always bridges the gap. It always finds its way back together, no matter how we try to mm-hmm. separate it. And we try to separate mm-hmm. ourselves from a journalistic perspective, but we are journalists. I mean, it is sports, but it's also news. And it always it, mm-hmm. we have to diversify ourselves. And with this coronavirus, you made up a good point. We always said we have to reset and. And realign and we're still re- resetting and realigning ourselves and we're you know we're stretching ourselves to whole new boundaries and you brought up a good point with that and um i want i'm going to get more back into corona in just a minute but you mentioned the toronto raptors now we know toronto has become a basketball city so i've got to ask you this demar derozan was well loved in that city for a mm-hmm. number of years he was straight to san antonio out goes DeMar, in comes Kawhi Leonard. We know what the end result was and that Kawhi and his team brings home the championship. So I'm going to ask you a two-part question. First question is, what were your thoughts were when DeMar was traded? And the second question is, how did you feel about Kawhi coming in and helping the Raptors win the title? Um, that's a great question. So when DeMar was traded, um, I, I it was – it was heartbreaking in a lot of ways. Um, and I, and I say this, you know, as, as journalists were, you know, supposed to be very, very neutral, but uh, it was, it was, it was, it was heartbreaking for me because I could relate to his experience. It wasn't so much. And I think this, uh, you know, I could speak for a lot of Torontonians uh, on this, but it wasn't so much that, you know, he was traded because I mean, this is sport, you know, we, we know that, that things like that happen. He was a beloved, you know, um, fixture in, in uh, Toronto basketball. Um, but it was the way that it was done. And um, he was hurt and he, he felt like he was blindsided. And so um, he, I remember he had posted something on his Instagram stories and um, uh, just, you know, expressing his, his, uh, his 
you know, his, his disappointment in the way things were done. He didn't have any warning. And so for me, it, it brought back um, a lot of, you know, I was kind of triggering, you know, just thinking about some of the places that I've worked with. And sometimes you, you labor on behalf of an organization and you think that you're going to get something from them in return, you know, and, and you don't. And it's, it can just leave a bitter taste in your mouth. And so it was a reminder to me that, you know, when you, when you, when you, you put in the work, do it. Like I'm a person of faith, I say, do it unto God, you know, just do your best, you know, do it to, to honor your family, do it to do a good job, but don't do it expecting that, you know, whatever organization that you're working for is going to, um, you know, give you uh, or to take care of you. And I've seen so many athletes and myself as an athlete, friends that I've had that, that, that fell into that trap, just thinking that I was going to be taken care of because this, and they get an injury, and they realize that they're not going to be taken care of. So um, it's, it's a sad and, and a, a cruel part of sport, but it's, it's a part of sport, and it was just a reminder for me. So, um, and I think a lot of people, right, in, in that time, um, obviously getting um, a top player like Kawhi Leonard didn't um, hurt anybody, you know, his feelings, you know, when, they, when they, we found that that was happening. It was, I think, for, for most people in Toronto and for myself, it was just sort of like, okay, let's wait and see how this goes. Like, this is, there's a lot of potential here for us to do something really special. And um, also, the track record of Masai Hujiri, who's, who's just been incredible. Um, he he and, and just shown himself an incredible leader over the years as he's rose through the ranks in the, in the Raptors organization. And um, you just kind of had to trust it. You know, you just kind of had to wait and see how uh, this played out. And, of course, um, we had, you know, really the perfect outcome. So um, not much to, to complain about there. Um, uh, I can't remember the second part of your question. Did I answer it? Yeah, you did. Uh, the second part of the question okay. is just basically just what were your feelings with uh, Kawhi coming to Toronto and uh, um, helping the, the Raptors win the title? Yeah. So it was, it, obviously it was, it was, um, it was definitely um at, at that point, when we we knew that Kawhi was coming and, and things were solidified, and he did the, the press conference. It was a very exciting time, you know. Um, it was, so I, I think the best way to describe that period was was bittersweet, you know. So you, I think for the Toronto fans, um, uh, they felt like they were losing, you know, a, a fixture in uh, Toronto basketball and 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 a person that that built us to a certain level and a certain level of of notoriety and, and, and clout, you know, especially, you know, when we were getting, you know, called, you know, our, the Raptor was being called Barney and, and, and Toronto and, and Canada, Canadian basketball was, was, you know, somewhat ridiculed, you know, um, within the NBA and, and to, to, to gain the street cred that we had, you know, Vince Carter and, and coming up through the years, it was, it was incredible um, what, what DeMar did for us and the level that he brought us to. And um, we knew that um, a franchise player like Kawhi is somebody that could really, really take us to the next level. And, um, um, and so it was, it was exciting, you know, it was exciting, although it was, it was a little heartbreaking. It was exciting. And, um, and, and obviously we saw how that played out. Yeah, it played out very well. Of course, uh, the end result was the title beating the Golden State Warriors. So let's move on mm -hmm. now to uh, Tokyo because, again, this year was supposed to be in an Olympic year, but, you know, the pandemic is in progress right now. So for the time mm -hmm. being, Tokyo will be next summer. Have you talked to mm -hmm. any athletes in the Canadian, not just uh, 
track and field association, but just Canadian athletes on how the pandemic has affected their, not just their mental state of mind, but their physical state of mind and what they're doing to plan for the hopes of competing next summer in Tokyo in in the uh, Summer Olympics. Actually, you know what? I, I haven't, I can't say that I've talked to any athletes personally However, um, just because we've been in quarantine and usually, like, I'm seeing people all the time, you know, and I can, we can have those conversations kind of organically, but people have just been posting and stuff like that. And so, you know, the people that, um, I, of course, in track and field, because I'm very, very close to that community, um, you know, coming out as an athlete and a coach, but in other sports as well. And I, I, for the most part, um, athletes are in, in good spirits, at least the Canadian athletes, um, and, and they're just doing the best with what they have. You know, people are, are you know, developing um, little, you know, gyms at home and, and finding creative ways to get uh, to maintain their fitness. Um, of course, part of uh, preparing for an Olympics and part of the fitness journey is competing. You know, uh, so if you're um, a boxer, you're 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 going to you know you're boxing you know in competition. If you're a track and field athlete, you're 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 running races and you're going into the European circuit and you're and and all of that is a build up into um, the Olympic Games. And so not having this critical period of build up into the Olympics, even if they are next year, um, is is really affects um, your your progress. However, the silver lining is that everybody's in the same boat. So um, I, I find that athletes are, are just out here just staying positive. Obviously, age is a, a critical factor in this. If you're 22 years old and you got to, you know, wait another year, it's not really a big deal. However, if you're, you know, 32 years old and this was kind of going to be your last hurrah in the sport, it can be a little bit more um, – it can be a little bit more uh, of a challenge, you know, because every year is so much of a sacrifice, you know. So um, athletes are, I would say, uh, on the most part, just trying to make the best of it. I know at the very beginning, a lot of athletes were posting that, you know, this this decision was made prematurely and, you know, it was we should have held off longer. But uh, the Olympic Committee had to make a decision. All, the production that goes into Olympic Games is, is so much more than athletes and, and, and fans. You know, you can, you know, not have fans and it, it would still be, you know, thousands and thousands of people in, in this one place. So um, there's a lot to think about with a, a virus like Corona that spreads so easily. And um, so I, I completely, um, you know, understand and, and, and respect um, the, the timing of that decision. Um, ooh, actually, it can be argued that it came a little bit late. But um, it, the thing with the coronavirus is that we just don't know what's going to happen. So it's been rescheduled for 2021, but still it's, it's all tentative. It really just depends on a lot of factors. Um, if we're able to do, how we're able to do testing, if we have, you know, some sort of vaccine by then, and, uh, it's still incredibly, incredibly risky. And um, right now I think we're in a period where we're seeing a lot of sports that are beginning to, to, to have these tentative schedules, the NBA, of course, and, and different leagues. And it's like, okay, like it, it's all very tentative, you know, even if they do this Disneyland thing, like the, the NBA is proposing right now uh, to begin on July 31st, um, the, the, uh, the America's on an uptick right now in the coronavirus because many of the states opened early. So um, 
it's still something that could get mixed, you know, in the, in the coming weeks. So we, we don't know. Everything's a question. Everything's got an asterisk next to it uh, right now. And um, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what, we'll see what happens. But um, I, I, on a whole pointing, but this is, it's not, the thing is, it's not just about athletes. It's, it's people in, um, you know, it's influencers. It's, it's the people that live in the work of the travel industry. It's people that that are in every aspect of life is being affected by this virus, and, and athletes are no different. So knowing that they're just this is not something that's special that's happening to athletes. It's a part of something that's happening globally to everyone. I think, um, uh, and that we all have to kind of accept. Kind of makes it um, uh, maybe a little bit. Uh, I wouldn't say easier, but. Um, it also, it just helps you to, to have a perspective on, you know, what this, yes, I'm an athlete, and I love to compete, but uh, health and safety of our global community is more important than my desire to compete, uh, just like, you know, anybody in any position uh, would, would understand that, that the, the health and safety of the global communities is more important than whatever plans and goals that they had for the year. So um, I'm proud of the way athletes are managing it and, and the humor and grace that they're, they're, they're taking things, and um, we hope Hope to see them competing in, in um, Tokyo 2021, but um, I, I, like I said, it's um, nothing is setting. Everything is sort of tentative right now. We've seen we've seen some states in uh, the United States uh, seeing a spike in, in cases once again. What's it like in Canada right now in terms of the provinces? Like what's going on in Ontario and? Quebec and British Columbia and Saskatchewan. Are we seeing? Are there any spikes going on? Uh, resurgent mm. case, resurgent cases in the the different provinces. Mm. Um, so, the ni- I think over ninety five percent of uh, definitely over ninety percent, but I think it's even over ninety five percent of coronavirus cases in Canada are actually in Co- Ontario and Quebec, so just the two provinces. So, um, you know, I have a, a couple friends out in Calgary and we talk regularly and they're, they're going to the massage parlor and, you know, they, not the massage parlor, the, going to their physiotherapist and that sort of thing. And it's like, um, what? Like, that, that's not even something that um, uh, we've, we're, you know, been able to entertain for the past few months in, in Ontario. So, um, however, um, I, I have to say our, our, our president, um, uh, Justin Trudeau and um, our provincial leadership have, have done a really, really, um, I think, uh, uh, done quite well in sort of managing the virus. Um, it's uh, the, the landscape in, in, in Canada is um, a lot more different than the States. Like, um, it, I, I think down there, it, it's, uh, you know, part of the beauty and um, challenge, even in the, in, in the best of leadership, is it's kind of a, a messy and disorganized, you know, like the the states have different rights and that sort of thing, whereas in Canada it's a little bit different. Um, so everybody's kind of been on the same page, whether they're, you know, uh, on the, the left or the right of, of politics. And um, there's, there's just been a united front. So in Ontario, um, our, our cases have pretty much leveled off and, and, and um, started to, to go down. So we've lifted up some restrictions um, for some businesses um, in in the past couple of weeks, but even with the lifting up some restrictions, it hasn't been a complete open. So I I, I remember um, it was a big deal that um, you know um, you know stores that sell hair products was, were opening up, but even they were just doing curbside pickups and that sort of thing. Electronic stores opened up and they were doing curbside pickups and limiting um, the people that were able to be in the store. So it wasn't just like this this 
you know, keep complete listing of, of bans and opening up. It's, everything's been very, very cautious. Uh, very recently, um, churches were, have been allowed to come back um, at 30% capacity of their facilities. And most of the churches have chosen not to come back. You know, I'd actually don't, I can't think of a church off my head that, that has decided to come back. Most of them are just taking, you know, a couple more weeks just to plan and, and strategize as to how they're going to make sure everybody stays within um, the the you know social distancing and hand washing and sanitization um, uh, measures that we have in place. So um, it, we're we're faring. Um, we're not we're not doing as well as New Zealand, that's for sure. But we're we're mm-hmm. faring much better. And also, um, given the um, the the protests that have been happening um, over the past uh, days and, and week or so. Um, we don't know what kind of, uh, most people were wearing masks, but we don't know what kind of a surge that, that could potentially cause. And so it takes a couple of weeks to see, um, as you know, in the States, because you've, of course, had the protests as well, um, what kind of effect that'll have. So um, we'll see if, if we do see a rise. But um, at the moment, um, things are, are, are looking like they're improving. Um, yeah. All right. Well, fair enough. And, um, you know, you guys in, in, in uh, Canada are dealing with the challenges as the rest of the world is with the coronavirus. But uh, speaking of a challenge, George Floyd, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. his death was very tragic and it affected the whole world. Everyone has been in protesting. Has, everyone has been protesting from black, white, mm-hmm. all racial groups, all nationalities have come out in solidarity and protesting of that, that gentleman that, that died so tragically. Um, mm-hmm. What's your take on the George Floyd situation and how has Toronto and the rest of Canada handled that situation? Um, I have to say, um, been bittersweet as someone who's been talking about race for uh, a long time and not really seeing um sort of the, the not, it, it gaining a lot of traction within uh, non-Black communities, um, seeing the response to that has, has been so refreshing. You know, I, I know that the, we can see, of course, that the George Floyd, what happened to him, um, the appalling murder uh, by the Minneapolis police officer, was really just the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, but as as black people, we've been on this journey for a very, very long time. And so it was like it was it was really um, a time's up moment. And and what was so special, I think, about this was that um, it was uh, a lot of people that are not um, of the black community have joined in and said time's up. And I think a lot of people for the very first time are considering um, racism. I heard somebody say that racism is kind of like dust. You know how you, you, you can't really see dust in the air, but then when you shine the light, you open the window, you shine the light, you can see the dust is everywhere, you know, and that racism is kind of like that. Like it's absolutely everywhere. And I think that um, I was talking to an athlete for a story that I, I'm working on uh, just a, a couple of days ago. And uh, he was saying that um, in Canada, the different, and he was he was from the southern United States and moved to to Canada and played for the CFL. And he said the difference is that in Canada, um, uh, people it's almost worse in Canada because people don't talk about it. People are it's kind of like this 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 covert racism. At least in the states, like it's a lot more overt. You know, people 
will say things and 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 make it known like that it's it's this is racially uh, motivated. Whereas um, um, in Canada, they they kind of they do it and, and kind of pretend that it's it's not happening. So it kind of can feel like gaslighting in a lot of ways, you know. And so, um, but we racism is a huge issue and something that um, I personally experienced throughout my life, you know, just, you know, like from stories of just walking with white friends and not being able to pass their home because their parents would get mad to see them as a, with a, a black person. And, and Ed, like I was, was the nerdiest, <laughs> most awkward black girl as a kid. And it was, it was just absurd. And as, you know, an A student and, and for somebody to, to not be allowed to see, be seen with me just because I was black um was was just so uh heartbreaking you know and so you have like this this and just experience in the workplace and all of that and so these, ex- these experiences of trauma over the years i think that for all of us it's been very very triggering and particularly in canadian media i've mentioned it a few times in our conversation that the landscape in canadian media is so white and it is predominantly male but it's really white and it's really um a certain type of white it's a really privileged white as well and so um people of color um truly diverse people of color like myself often feel like um this this wasn't designed for me you know i mean worth my place in this and so you kind of feel like you have to carve your own lane uh just so you can uh, breathe and, and feel free and, and feel heard. And so a lot of um, people in Canadian media, which is wonderful, have, have been coming forward and sharing their experiences. And there have been a lot of very high-profile cases. And it's been so relieving to see um, even, um, I, I mentioned, you know, I work at CB, I worked at CBC, and I was the only black writer there. And actually the one of two female writers so of all of the writers like let that sink in you know this is in Toronto and so um it was it was it was a very very difficult environment outside of the Olympic Games just on a regular day in the office it's, it's really difficult you know and you don't have anybody that kind of speaks your language uh, as a as a black person or understands your experience and um it can be it can be so hard. Um, the first time I walked into a, a newsroom at CBC, and this was during the Olympics, where they have a lot more diverse people that come in because they hire a lot of uh, people just for the Olympic Games. And it was it was I remember um, a, a black gentleman that was there and uh, another a, a black woman, the only two other black people. And they, they pulled me into a corner right away. I didn't even know them, and they said and they started joking and they said, "Oh, it's going to be so tough here." Da, da, da. They said, "You know, we should start a prayer circle just as a joke." You know what I mean? I was like, "What are these people talking about?" you know and um and then you know after my experience over the the weeks I was like oh I get it you know I get it it's so tough and it can be really um uh it can if you're not careful it can really uh crush your spirit you know and and um you just most people they just say you know I don't really want to work there and if I'm honest with myself like uh I, that's kind of how I felt it's kind of like how why I started color commentary that's why you just like I just want to be able to to be myself and do what I feel like I was called to do, you know? And um, so uh, hearing um, the cry of the black community, just having the platform to be able to be, to speak and be heard and for our um, perspective that our voices uh, not be uh, diminished, you know, right now has been like, this is absolutely incredible. But at the same time, it's like, it's bittersweet. Like I said, cause it's like, why did it take all this to, for you to, value me because 
just looking at the contrast, you realize in so many ways how you got used to disrespect, how you got used to, you know, not being heard, you know, not being valued in the same way. And it's like for all of this to happen and to finally feel like um, black people are being heard, it's, it's, um, it's, I'm grateful that it's happening now, but it's also um, can be kind of disheartening that it, like it, it, it's taken so long to happen, but um, I'm a person who likes to, to stay on that positive side. And so I think a lot of people for a while were just kind of waiting for this to die and like, Oh, it'll be a couple weeks and stuff like that. But um, I, I believe the revolution is here, you know, and, and one of the things in sports media that I've noticed is that all pretty much all the black people in media in Canada that I know have, have, uh, been kind of speaking out and and expressed their ch- the challenges they've been you know had over the years and 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 um, posting about it in some way even if they're sharing other people's posts but a lot of the um, white media even well intentioned and people that I would consider you know that you know are you know doing the work to become an ally they've been kind of quiet you know in terms of their public voice and I was thinking about that the other day and I said you know as journalists we're taught to be objective and not to um, you know, vocalize our, you know, political opinions and that sort of thing. But um, with this particular um, issue, it's so deeply personal to um, journalists, black journalists, you know, it's something that we face every single day within journalism. So it's impossible for us to be objective on this. It's impossible for us to be quiet on this. And so it's almost white privilege to be able to be a journalist and still feel like you can maintain objectivity in this. So um, it's it's been um, an interesting ride, to say the least, and very, I can speak from a personal standpoint, very emotional. Um, I, I, I can't really get into all of the details of some of the conversations that I've had with people that I've worked with in leadership in the past couple of weeks, but it's been so um, emotional and just um, triggering, you know, um, and exhausting as well. Uh, last week I just felt so exhausted because uh, for for us, for, for black people, like this is not a new thing. This has been two weeks, you know, of, of racism. This has been our whole lives, you know, and, um, and also being the people that are kind of, you know, that have to talk about it now. They have to talk about to your white boss about it now. You got to talk to, you know, the people that you worked with in the past about it. And it's, 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 it's hard. And um, you can feel like it's, 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 it shouldn't be an act of bravery to, to call out uh, when you are, feel like you're being mistreated, but it, it is, it's still so much is. Um, and if we had the, I don't know if you heard about the situation with Jessica Mulrooney that happened recently, uh, the Toronto influencer that's been high in the media and um, um, another um, journalist, a contributor to one of the, the big uh, outlets here, um, Aika Wong quit her job because of the way that she felt like she was treated. So I'm so happy that people feeling are feeling and finally feeling empowered to speak out and that changes are being made. Even with the CBC, they, they, they set out um, uh, um, a, a strategy plan. Uh, they've implemented a strategy plan to ensure that the, the office um, becomes more diverse, you know, so they're, uh, now they have to hire one person of color um, for, for one of every two people that they hire has to be a person of color. So um, presumably uh, in the next five years, or 10 years or what have you, the landscape of the newsroom as people retire should be quite different. So um, it's, it's, it's refreshing to see that people are finally taking this seriously, but at the same time, it's kind of like I said, a little bit bittersweet because it's like, how, why did this 
Yeah, you're right about that. It, it took way too long, but, you know, there's a silver lining in all of this. And speaking of a silver lining, it, it we transition now to, into something that, that you've done, something that you've created, and that's a, a YouTube channel that you have called Color Commentary, which is dedicated to athletes and highlighting their fight for social change, social justice and change, and also uh, things that have gotten your attention. So just let our audience know what just dig deep into what color commentary is all about and what your message is for, for your YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. So um, I, as I mentioned, the color commentary for me was burst out of um, a desire to hear certain stories be told. You know, I'm very um, much, I love um explanatory journalism, you know, uh, I know like Vox Media and different outlets are really good with doing that. Something that's risen a lot in the, in the past couple of years, but um, I'm very interested in explanatory journalism and uh, with the resurgence of athlete activism that we've been seeing over the past few years with the rise of people like Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James, um, I, because sport is this incredible uh, thing, entity that we have that brings people from across the world together. I felt very strongly that um, if we talk about um, race and social justice within this context, it would um, enable people to hear and to listen and to to understand and and be more inclined to try to understand what's going on. Um, Because uh, maybe sport being maybe seen as a a less political um, space, um, people would be able to, to think more with their hearts and not their heads, if that makes sense. And so um, I began uh, the, the channel sometime last year. And uh, for me, it was also an opportunity to, to build my voice as a journalist. I think in Canada, if you're a journalist that talks about race, you have company. You know, uh, William C. Bolden is one of my favorite journalists. He's at ESPN and wrote $40 million slaves. And there's been so many others uh, in, in the United States that talk about race on a regular basis. But in Canada, like, there's, there's not a lot of that. And so uh, the type of um, uh, social justice and race discussions that I wanted to have, um, I, 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 it was twofold. So I didn't feel um, it was necessarily something that I was seeing. And I just, I also felt like I wanted to um, build my repertoire, develop my confidence in, 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 in my, my, uh, my voice on these subjects and um, kind of really carve out what, um, I see this color commentary thing uh, becoming. So um, I've done uh, a number of episodes at, to date and um, been able to talk about a lot of very, very interesting things, especially in the last few weeks uh, with the Michael Jordan documentary and all of the things on, on race. Um, I've been able to talk about allyship through the Peter Norman story, and that was Peter Norman with the the silver medalist at the 1968 Olympics. Uh, he was from Australia, and uh, he was on the podium with Tommy Smith and John Collins when they, you know, famously raised their fists fist in protest um, to the way black people were being treated in um, and are still be treat, being treated in the United States, and um, how he was an ally, um, and a lot of people don't recognize that. Um, and and it, I use that as a, a tool to, to kind of, um, teach people how to be allies, you know, and um, uh, and sometimes um, I think in all of this, and something that I've been reflecting on, um, I, I think it's so wonderful that uh, people in media and, and, and other spheres have 
felt empowered to use their voice um, to protest against the social injustice. And um, at the end of the day, we can't legislate a change in people's hearts. We can change laws. We can, and there's been so much progress, but what we're looking for is a change in people's hearts because so much of what's happening is not necessarily taught. You know, there are people that, white people that come from families that, overtly teaching them to be racist, but these people are still getting, it's getting caught in some way. It's not taught, but it's getting caught, you know, and we have to recognize the historical reasons why that's been the dehumanization of black people. And um, my, my goal and my objective is to help people to see, I feel like I'm always talking to allies in this because black people, we're, we're already there. We already understand these things. I think we, talk, we have these conversations all the time. The only difference is that in the past couple of weeks, we've been able to have them publicly in front of white audiences. But these are things that we talk about with our family, with our black friends all the time. So um, I always feel like my, my, um, I'm always out there trying to um, bring understanding and also doing it like in a way that's kind of seasoned with grace because most of the people that I know, uh, white people that I know, they are really, I think, well-intentioned people that want to understand, that want to learn, that want to grow, just really weren't aware of so many different things. And so if I can uh, bring you sport to bring awareness and understanding and also tell um, the stories of uh, black people and other people of color, other athletes of color, in a, a from um, uh, from a, a lens that um, is not white supremacist, you know, um, it will change the way that we see stories, the way that we tell stories, and will help to shape um, the. The, the ideology and the narrative around race in um, North America. I think that's ultimately my hope. I know it's like this one little YouTube channel and I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, one person, but I think within my sphere of influence and I'm believing that that will continue to grow and grow and grow that um, um, it, 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 my hope is just to make a real impact in that area. Well, you've definitely done that part thus far. And I've got to ask you, you did a recent episode about Michael Jordan. And I want to know, Michael has recently donated his money to in efforts to combat racial injustice. Do you think he's right? Do you think he could have done more during the, the time that he was an athlete before the Internet and social media that would have greatly influenced his is standing for social justice, or do you think his do you think it's a, a better late than never situation with him? Yeah, I think I think it's always better late than never. As long as you are alive and there's air in um, your lungs, you have an opportunity to to kind of um, I don't say make things right, but um, do your best to kind of right uh, the wrongs of your past, you know. Um, but, uh, yes, I, I, I would definitely say that um, the influence and the level of clout that Michael Jordan uh, carried as the most recognized, one of the most recognizable men, not black men, but men, period, in the world um, in the 90s, um, uh, if he had um, done even a little bit, you know, it would have been 
meant so much and it could have done so much for the black community. But instead he chose neutrality. And um, that's, mm-hmm. I think, the the painful part of his legacy at the top of his career, obviously, particularly with the resurgence of his popularity with this um, documentary series and also we're all at home and basically everybody watched it. So he's, he still very much has a lot of influence. He's an owner and that sort of thing. But um, he's still, he's st- so he's still a name. He still is making an impact. He's, he's made this commitment to, to donate a, a significant amount of money. And, and those are all wonderful things. But um, uh, Michael C. Rodin said it so beautifully in uh, $40 million slaves. He said that the, the, and I'm, I think I'm probably going to mess it up, but the, the gist of it was that the, the, the power of, um, Jordan's legacy is everything that he accomplished, but the tragedy of his legacy is everything that he could have, you know, and uh, when kids were shooting them, uh, shooting each other over his shoes, uh, I think he had, he missed a, a, a great opportunity there to, you know, say, you know, you, like, you want to be like, I don't know what he could have done, but you want to be like Mike, like Mike wouldn't do that. And this, they, they would have hurt him, I believe. And, um, and then followed that up with, you know, putting his money where his mouth is and investing in communities, investing in, 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 in black and disadvantaged communities and, and coming through and showing your face and showing support and showing them that they matter and that they don't have to, to do this, they don't have to live this way or um, even there's been so many other things, uh, the sweatshops right into his lap and he, he really did nothing with it to as a person of influence to, to speak out against what's wrong, you know, and, and, and provide a specific in, uh, inspiration. But um, at that time, um, as I mentioned earlier in our interview, um, the generation after the civil rights movement was very, very apolitical. Um, Michael Jordan's um, uh, agent, David Falk, in an interview talked about, this wasn't in, um, in the documentary, but in another interview, he talked about that, that uh, Michael Jordan uh, was raised to be colorblind. He was his parents, he said, they said, he said his parents raised him that way. Um, sometimes we think, we get the impression that he was being coached to be apolitical just for you know to, to protect the brand and David Falk said that that's not true that was him you know he was just an apolitical guy I never had to tell him how to say anything he just wasn't uh political and and part of that as I mentioned in the in the episode that you're referring to it had to do with um the way desegregation was handled in the United States so when um schools uh um uh started to allow when the white uh colleges in the state started to allow black athletes, um, started to integrate rather, uh, only black athletes were integrated into these white institutions. So black coaches and, and that sort of thing were not. So it was an incomplete integration. And so these white institutions had the, 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 the pick of the, of the, you know, um, of the best of, of, of black athletes, but they didn't have the responsibility to ensure that there were black people in leadership roles in those institutions. And that's, that's on us and on um, them, you know, and then, uh, cause we didn't demand that. And then um, furthermore, um, going to these universities removed the black athletes from black communities. So you, you have an athlete that's growing up in this community and at a very young age, they're kind of whisked into this, this white world and they're being, you know, they're, they're being, you know, getting, Financial, they're taking care of the tuitions uh, being taken care of, and and all of this kind of 
uh, thing, and um, it, it, it distanced them from the black community, and, and in doing so, distanced them from issues within the black community, because they're kind of whisked down this conveyor belt to success, and that's essentially what happened with Michael Jordan. He was whisked down this conveyor belt to, to superstardom, and so for him not to incredibly indignant about the issues in the black community um, is when you think about it like that, it really isn't surprising, especially because um, after the civil rights movement, there was that, that whole generation had this mentality, like um, anything that you want to do, if you're a black person, there's no limits that you can do it. And, and to some degree that's true, but there's still very much institutionalized systems and, and, and mindsets that are still plaguing America, as we can see uh, with everything that's happening right now and the, the cases of racism and discrimination that are coming to light right now. We're seeing that so much hasn't changed, but I feel like that generation didn't, didn't really understand that. They were so removed from um, what was happening in black communities that they kind of saw themselves as kind of uh, 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 like proof that like there's no limits that you can to doing anything when in the reality black people are still disproportionately represented amongst all the, the bad categories in, in uh, the United States and, and in, in Canada as well. So um, it was, uh, I think what's happening right now, I can't speak for Michael Jordan, but I think that um, as an older gentleman, um, and uh, he's, you know, he's, he's not that old, I think he's 50 something or whatever, but he's had time to kind of reflect and um, look back and also seeing um, the way athletes like LeBron James in particular have handled it and how LeBron James has been very vocal of, of about righting the wrongs of the Jordan generation in terms of them not speaking up when it was so important to it. And so LeBron James has been so unapologetically um, on the ball when it comes to those things. And he's just somebody who just hasn't dropped the ball, it seems like, at all. And um, um, really just showing how it can be done, how an athlete with um, incredible clout and influence can use their platform to really, really implement, implement social change. And um, that's incredible. And I think that you know, Michael Jordan is in a place where he's able to look back on that and look back on his career and look at, at all the issues and kind of think like, wow, like I could have done so much. And so seeing him come forward now and um, using personal language as well and saying us and uh, we as black people, you know, it was for me that was really telling because you know, you've never really heard uh, Michael Jordan talk like that. He's so apolitical and he seemed to almost had, um, had in a, uh, in that OJ Simpson type of way, transcended race, you know, um, and, and was living in a certain space where it's like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not black, I'm Michael Jordan, you know, he didn't say that. I'm just, Holding uh, OJ Simpson, yeah. but um, he, yeah, he was just he was living in that in that kind of in that kind of world. So for him to use personal language and talk about being uh, even mentioned being a black man, for me, I was taken aback, and I thought, wow, I think he's really in a place where he's been able to reflect, and obviously he's putting his money where his mouth is as well, which is really powerful. So I really hope, particularly with the resurgence of this Michael Jordan documentary and with everything that's been going on, um, that um, you know it's not too late. Like he's relatively speaking a young person and, and can have such a, a great impact um, on uh, the black community and all communities. Um, and he has um, 
the uh, notoriety and the, the clout, maybe not in the same way that he did in the 90s, but uh, he still has that in a lot of ways and um, can still make an impact. So it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to see. And um, uh, we also just have to have grace for people, you know, like we're all growing and we're all developing and we have every right to hold each other to account. But I think that uh, um, having grace for each other is important and trying to understand uh, people's perspective and their journey is important. And I, that's why I, I chose to do that that piece in color commentary because I think that a lot of people just don't understand why Michael Jordan didn't say anything ever, you know, and uh, I wanted to help people to understand um, the journey of segregation, the, how that separated um, the athletes from the black communities and how they were with down this conveyor belt to success. Um, and and it, it, it changed the way that they felt connected to the black community. So um, it's no surprise um, how uh, we, we've seen them, you know, kind of take this apolitical stance. Um, but uh, Williams, he wrote and talks about that a lot in his book, $40 million, which I think like I've mentioned, but it's such a, when I read that book, it was just so incredible and life-changing for me in terms of um, just seeing another journalist that was uh, interested in the same issues that I was. So hope to meet him someday. But, um, uh, but yeah, he talks about that a lot and other um, authors as well. So I, I definitely want to bring that to light, um, given the popularity of the documentary series. Yeah, absolutely. And again, um, you know, it's never too late for change and you never too late for change. And you made up a good point, just giving everybody grace and giving opportunity to just change and to grow because we're all still growing in life. And speaking of so, an athlete that I know that would have had a lot to say about this and was ever growing and ever changing. And unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to see his full change and continue to change as a gentleman by the name of Kobe Bryant. And I know Kobe would have had a lot to say about this and, um, did you have opportunity to meet Kobe, or did you have opportunity to maybe uh, cover Kobe during his time playing with the Lakers and uh, coming to Toronto, or if you have any Kobe stories you'd like to share? Yeah, no, I, I wish I had uh, met Kobe Bryant. That would have been incredible, but um, I, I didn't, unfortunately. And, um, uh, you know, he, he retired in 2018, that's right, right? So um, I wasn't covering basketball or anything at that time. But um, Kobe was a huge part of, of, you know, my childhood, you know. He was, he was the athlete of, of our generation, you know. And um, I, I think of celebrity death and the, the death of Kobe Bryant was probably the most personal or, or one of the most personal for me. Um, I didn't even feel like I could post anything um, about it um, for a long time just because uh, he, he just always had been there. He'd always been around. He, he was drafted. He, when he was drafted, he was 17 years, 17 years old, going on 18. And um, we saw him grow from uh, a kid uh, into um, this, this great, the greatest player, um, one of the greatest players, arguably one of the greatest, not arguably, but he's definitely one of the greatest players, but you know, people used to argue about him being better than Michael Jordan, but we, I think we've, we've handled that in, in um, at least recent months, but um, uh, yeah, so it was, it was, it was really, really um, difficult for me, but one of the, the biggest things that um, came out of that, uh, especially concerning his legacy was um, his role as a father and as a championship, a champion for women's sport. 
um, particularly uh, basketball and uh, tennis, and the symbolism uh, of him, you know, dying uh, with his daughter on the way and other athletes um, on the way to uh, a basketball tournament, I think is just so symbolic of the person that um, he was and his investment in the in the women's basketball uh, movement. Um, so many people, particularly after he, he passed, I, you know, I heard quite a few people say, you know, too bad, you know, he never had a son and um, his legacy won't go on. And I was just like, that's not Kobe at all, you know? Um, and he, he never, he never, what, what strikes me about him is he never saw not having a son as some sort of, you know, giving, putting an asterisk on, on his legacy. You know what I mean? He was, he, of course, that the hashtag girl dad has, has gained uh, incredible popularity because of him, because he was he was so impassioned for his 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 daughters and 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 um, uh, supported uh, his daughter Gigi's journey in basketball in sport, and I, I have no doubt that um, they uh, would have continued to make an incredible impact. But I think that even um, you know all things work together for good. I believe that firmly, and even. Um, though he's passed, I think that the the legacy and the way things kind of went down, I think it's gonna um, maybe even have an even more powerful full legacy on 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 women's basketball and women's sport. He also, of course, is a, is a huge champion for women's tennis, you know, and had actually wrote a book for his daughters that looked at uh, at tennis. Um, but I think what book for his daughter, she wrote for his daughter, it was a public book that you can, you can buy on Amazon or whatever. But it was it was it was intended for his. His, that was his motivation was to write a book for his daughters, for his daughters to feel represented and seen. But um, he's he's just been he's just been great, and um, uh, I'm excited to see uh, what his impact will will do to women's sport. And I love to see his uh, the way his funeral and the way his memorial was conducted, and how um, there were so many players, female players and um, men and women that were able to speak to him and uh, speak of him and his legacy. And so much of that was just his legacy as a father. And I think that that was just a, a powerful image to, to men everywhere. You know, um, it's, it's always interesting to me with this generation, um, also, especially with Obama and, and all of that and the symbolism of that, that, that family in the White House. It's like there's no excuse for not being a good dad, you know, in this generation, it's like, it, it's actually, it's cool to be a good dad, you know, and I think that um, um, Kobe Bryant's legacy um, definitely reinforced that for a lot of people, because uh, he was a, a hero to so many, um, um, and that's, um, I, I, I'm very intrigued to see how his legacy plays out in coming years, and the, maybe the awards and the, um, uh, you know, facilities or whatever that continue to be establishing his name and, and the legacy of him and his daughter. Um, I think it's going to be incredible and, and continue. I think he'll continue to, to have an incredible legacy on, on sport and, and women's sport in particular. Rightfully so. And uh, long live the black Mamba. And um, speaking of a legacy, <laughs> you're uh, having a legacy of your own as well. Just tell our audience the newspaper that you, uh, you're currently working for and uh, what other current projects you have in, in, um, in addition to doing color commentary. 
Yeah, so um, I, I work with the Register, which is a Canadian newspaper. It's actually a hard copy newspaper that's distributed across Canada. So it's the first time for me, this, um, other than a few pullouts in the Toronto Star that I've done during um, Indigenous Games, um, to see my work in print. You know, they're just kind of surreal because I've, I've only been a journalist in the digital age. Um, so that's interesting. Um, it, it's super um, demanding. Uh, we're a small newspaper, so it's a small team. So the the, the, the workload on, on every individual uh, to fill the paper um, is quite a bit, but I'm, I'm growing so much and learning so much, even just in, you know, the, the short space of time that I've, I've been there. Um, so I'm excited for the growth and develop that will happen over my season uh, with the paper. Um, uh, and sorry, your other part of your question was, Oh, other authors I'm involved in. Perfect. So um, I, I, I'm still a, a freelance writer. One of the, the great things about the paper I work for is it doesn't um, uh, limit me from being able to write for other outlets. Um, so there's a number of stories, sports stories that I'm working on um, that, that kind of look at race and sport. Um, over the past few days, um, I've been able to connect. Actually, um, one of the athletes that I interviewed um, uh, during the Pyeongchang Olympics, going into it actually for a feature story, um, reached out to me and, and wanted to open up about um, his journey with racism um, in skiing in, in Canada, you know, and um, it was very, very telling and, and heartbreaking. And so um, I was able to talk to a couple of other skiers as well who were able to share their experiences, you know, um, in, in, in skiing. Um, so uh, that's something that um, uh, I'll, I'll be definitely be, be sharing and, and posting about um, in uh, the coming days. Um, but yeah, uh, for me right now, um, and of course working on my channel. But for me right now, I'm I'm I I feel um, in terms of this 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 cause for for racial justice, I I kind of feel like, and I don't want to not to diminish um, the work of, of, of frontline workers in any way because they're obviously risking themselves on the front lines um, um, in a very, very different way than I am. But as a journalist, I, I definitely, helping to control the narrative around race uh, in sport um, in particular, I definitely feel like uh, a frontline worker. And so I've been... Uh, in this time, just taking in so much content, you know, and Ibram Tandy's books. And um, we have a Canadian journalist that uh, um, focuses on race here in Canada named Desmond Cole. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he has a book um, that came out earlier this year that's uh, now a bestseller given everything that's going on. So, you know, um, going through uh, his material and um, also uh, Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, has been incredible and just um, helping me um, understand what's going on um, and put words to what I feel like I've experienced my whole life and also shape um, the narrative of, of, of understanding and allyship that I think is so important right now. So um, it's been kind of emotionally exhausting at times, having to constantly address race, talk about race and um, research race and all of that kind of stuff. But um, it's so important. And so um, as a journalist, I think in this time, we're really on the front lines and we have a, a, a great opportunity and I, in, my, in my heart and in my mind. I, I don't um, think that this is uh, just sort of like a, a hot button topic right now. I think that, the, that we're in the middle of a movement that will um, 
cause lasting change, and we're, we're seeing that, and, and um, um, it's going to take time for this to really affect the change that we want to see socially. So um, I'm committed to the journey, and um, uh, in every way that I can, as a writer, as a, um, as a reporter, as, you know, a speaker, to, to push the needle forward when it comes to um, social justice and racial equality. Man, that's awesome to hear, and you're doing uh, great things and uh, continuing to do great things. So, uh, Wendy Ann, thank you so much for being on the program. But before we let you go, can you let the audience know where they can find you on social media? And if you have a website or any website you want to direct them to for your articles, uh, let them know that as well. Okay, so um, I am Wendy Ann Runs, so W-E-N-D-Y-A-N-N Runs on social media, so that's on um, Instagram and Twitter um, as well. Um, I, uh, yeah, I have uh, my channel is called Color Commentary, so color spelled Canadian style, C-O-L-O-U-R, commentary. Uh, you can find that on YouTube and follow me there, and um, your support is amazing on this journey, and it's, it's just encouraging, you know, and it, it, um, the feedback that I've gotten so far has just been tremendous, and it encourages me that I'm on the right direction and the right path, and um, yeah, so um, you can find me there, and um, definitely feel free to email me and touch base, and we can have a conversation as well if that's something you want. So Wendy Ann Runs um, and Color Commentary. Well, you heard it from her. She's Wendy Ann Clark. She is a, a multimedia journalist, and she also has her YouTube channel, as she mentioned earlier, called Color Commentary. Color Commentary. Check it out and um, all the great, the great stuff that she has done and she's continued to do. Wendy Ann, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. This was, this was wonderful. And, again, thank you time taking time out of your schedule to be with us on the program. If you ever want to come back on, please feel free to let us know. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This has been tremendous. It was. Thank uh, you for all the good likewise. work that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And you continue the, the great work you're doing as well. And that's going to do it for another exciting edition of The Robinson Show. I'm your host, Ed Robinson. And remember, put God first in everything you do and you can't go wrong. Until next time, stick to the script. I'm out. And remember, stay safe and stay home. I'm out. Peace. People who are sick should stay home. You don't go to an emergency room. You don't go to a clinic. You get on the phone and you ask for advice and instructions from your physician. Then you use those instructions to determine what you're going to do. But the first reflex should not be, I feel sick, I'm going to go to an emergency room. I feel sick, I'm going to just go to a doctor's office. We need to physically separate. Ultimately, you may need, obviously, to see a physician or to go to a hospital. The first reflex should be to make a call to your physician. For businesses around the world, today isn't a restart. It's a rethink. That's why they're partnering with IBM. Retailers are keeping their systems up as millions of orders move online. Call centers are using IBM Watson to manage an influx of customer questions with AI. And solutions built on the IBM cloud are helping doctors care for patients remotely. Today, we're rethinking how business moves forward. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com smart to learn more. 
All right, buddy, I gotta go now, but I'll put on your favorite show. See you tonight. Welcome back to Cooking with Chef Antonio. Gee, well, I would like to know how this risotto will turn out, but I'll probably just go to sleep in your bed and sniff your sheets, and then figure out what that squirrel is planning. Squirrels. Your dog doesn't care if the TV is on. With energy saving tips and programs from Georgia Power, you can save money and make your home more efficient. Learn more at georgiapower.com slash efficiency.